Sheriff Campbell. This is, I got to tell you, this is a big deal to me. I have wanted to bring you on the podcast for a while. You are well known at this point, but something that made me angry was seeing you referred to as a deputy just at the protest that we recently <laughs> had. People not knowing who you are seems insane to me. Well, that's okay. I mean, sometimes uh, I'd like to still be a deputy, you know, and uh, when, when bad things come, it always comes up to the top. So uh, there are some days I missed just when I was a, a detective who just took his case file and went out on a case and didn't have much else to worry about. So You're still in our books at WJR, crossed out Detective Campbell, and now Sheriff, Sheriff written uh, right above that. Okay. And, you know, a lot of people truly, uh, if they don't have interaction, they don't know the difference. Um, they refer to all deputies as sheriffs. They'll say a sheriff drove by my house. And yeah. so I don't take any offense to that. Well, you, you seem like a guy that doesn't take offense to anything. I mean, excuse me, but you walked in front of a sign that said, fuck the police. Yeah. And you were willing to do that. We'll get to that eventually. I know that uh, my main point right here right now is getting to know you and letting the county get to know you. I mean, that's not really a hard thing to do. If anybody's ever talked to you, they know that mm-hmm. you're an open, you're a pretty open guy. I mean, how do you get into a line of work with the attitude that you have? I think it's kind of a juxtaposition. It seems strange or surreal to talk to you. And as open as you are a guy that runs the sheriff's department. Well, you know, I guess that uh, it's definitely mentorship along the way has been the key thing. Um, so I come from a good family. Uh, I come from a family that loved me, but we were we were pretty poor. And, uh, um, you know, we had some pretty rough times, and my home was condemned by the health department my senior year. And it was a pretty humiliating and embarrassing time because I lived right across from the school, and it was on the cover of the paper. It was kind of a little bit of a legal thing. It was on the front of the paper. And I remember it was my senior year, and in government class we read the paper. So if you can picture, we were reading about my house, we were reading about the deplorable condition of the house, and then my fellow classmates could literally turn their head 90 degrees and look at my house out the window out of uh, Phil Tidrick's classroom at uh, New Philadelphia High School. So it was a very humbling time. So I I think that when you come from a humble beginning like that, um, it checks your ego quite a bit, and that has always stuck with me. Outside of that... um, you know, I say this repeatedly, but I don't believe that there's any such thing as a self-made man. So a lot of people think that because I started out so humbly, the kid, people I went to school with and that I've done okay for myself in this county. And I always try to remind people, this is just a little pond. I mean, okay, I've got the position I love here, but it's a little pond. I'm not the president of the United States. I'm not anything like that. I haven't reached any of those great heights that some of those those individuals reach in life. But for me... Um, the people want to credit me for being self-made, like that I pulled myself up from this humble beginning and and pulled myself up at the bootstraps, and it's just so not true. Um, when I was 16, I got hired by Doug and Holly Clark, at Clark Sporting Goods, and I had saved mowing lawns and bought myself a little used car, and my first week on the job there, um, the transmission literally blew apart. Now, I don't know anything about cars. I still don't. I put gas in them and drive them, but the gears, <laughs> the gears were laying on the ground. And I remember way back then in like 1988 that, um, that it was going to cost the cheapest we could find a rebuilt one installed was like $1,200. And that might as well have been 20,000 to me at that point. Yeah. And Doug Clark, um, you know, reached into his pocket and handed me 1200 bucks. He had only known me a week. He didn't know me before he hired me. And, uh, 
you know, so there was a whole door open. Someone lifted me up. Yeah. I paid him back every penny, no interest. And to this day, we're lifelong friends. Um, I'm one of his biggest supporters. He's one of my biggest supporters. You know, he's trying to give me money when I ran for sheriff. I didn't even have an opponent. Um, <laughs> he did print some shirts for me for the parades and things like that. But, I mean, we're very close. And, uh, you know, then I moved on. And I, 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 uh, when I was 18, right out of high school, I got hired by um, a former juvenile judge, uh, George Demas. And uh, I love to tell these stories because... I was so impressionable at that age. My dad died that year. Um, in fact, I'll tell you a story about that. Um, as soon as I got hired in June, um, you don't get vacation working for the county. You don't get any vacation mm-hmm. um, until after you've worked a year. But we had planned on going to see my family in Tennessee uh, that I was named after. I'm named after my Uncle Orvis. And you got to wonder where a name like that comes from. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you got to wonder why it came from anywhere. <laughs> I mean, when yeah, it's the only time it's ever been beneficial in my life is when I run for sheriff because now eventually enough people know it that there's only one of them around, so that's a good thing. <laughs> but but anyhow, uh, it was a really critical time. We never went on vac- I had never been on a vacation. We never went to the beach, but we did periodically every every so often, couple of years or or whatever, would drive down to my uncle's, stay with him. He was a a major influence on my life, and I remember saying to the judge that, you know, hey, can I go down there? And he said, yeah, you know, you just won't get paid for that week. And he didn't care that I didn't actually have vacation. And right before we left, the week before we left, um, I lived in an area where we had to park on the street. A a truck driver fell asleep, and he totaled our car. And we only had one car that had the potential to make it to Tennessee. Sure. So uh, I I wasn't upset. I truly wasn't. I went in to the judge, and I said, uh, you know, um, hey, I'm not going to need that vacation or that time off right now. This happened. You know, the guy's insurance is going to get us another car, but we're going to postpone it. And it really wasn't a big deal. I wasn't disappointed. I wasn't anything. Well, the you know, keep in mind that um, we had lived in another home now after the condemned home, and, and it still wasn't very nice, though. And uh, that night, the judge uh, and his wife, Bessie, showed up at my home with their two cars. And I was very embarrassed, you know, because again, this is a judge who lived in a, you know, a beautiful home up in Wilkshire Hills. And I just looked up to him so much. And now he was seeing where I lived. And, and I remember just like I can almost bring those feelings to the front of my brain now, how embarrassed I was that he was there. And I was trying to play it off going, Oh no judge, it's no big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're going to go later. And he says, Hey, you're either taking our spare car. You don't have a job. (laughs) Now, if you know Judge Demas's heart, there's no way he would have fired me. But yeah. he sold it, and we took his car. We went and saw my uncle, um, and then my uncle died a few weeks later at 45 of an unexpected heart attack. And so I got to see him one more time because of people like that. You know, and, and can keep going. Harold McKimmy then was the sheriff that hired me, and it was so incredible the things he did for me I mean he promoted me to detective at such a young age he believed in me and that was what he gave to me if I look like I do things now easily I can tell you it's because of all the counseling sessions where he brought me in and just didn't tell me hey you could have done that better Mm -hmm. he'd spend an hour with me going over how everybody viewed it how the victims may have viewed it or this view. I mean, it was really mentorship is how I got to where I'm at. Yeah. Getting that, that full view of how I, yeah, you're getting a different perspective from somebody that understands what's going on. Yeah. I mean, and 
your view does change with experience. Um, you know, uh, I imagine that maybe when I was young, I would have thought about a protest coming like that with a big banner, a one way, uh, where I would have felt like I needed to defend myself. And I didn't feel like that anymore. I felt like now that protest was just another form of conversation. And, and we were going to engage in conversation. It started with a lot of how we postured ourselves. And I wanted to change their views as much as they wanted to change other people's views. So sure. that's how it was looked at. Yeah. At what point in your life do you realize this is the line of work that you want to get into? Oh, it was very early. I can't, I can't say for sure, but my, you know, my mom said that she remembered me at four always saying I wanted to do that. Now, what's funny is nobody in my family pursued law enforcement. My father came to Ohio from Tennessee because my grandfather, whom I never met, was wanted for running moonshine. So <laughs> I'm not going to say that my side of the family was always on the right side of the law. I always thought that would have been a cool story if he would have turned out to be one of those great original NASCAR drivers because that's how NASCAR supposedly started was running moonshine. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. But no, not my family. We were just uh, moonshiners, I guess. And <laughs> Um, my dad uh, grew up in the woods. He didn't live in a house. Uh, his mom died at a young age, and they literally, he grew up in the woods, and uh, they had a car that they stored some of their stuff in. And then when he was 18, they moved up to the Lake Erie area, and they met my mom um, traveling down 77 for work. He uh, met her in Alliance, and then they settled in New Philadelphia. And that's where I was born and raised, and I've lived my entire life. It, you come from a tough lineage, and that seems to make sense to me with your mindset because I can remember a story. My mom works at the clerk of courts and she mm -hmm. told me that you had called her about, I think needing a printer and seeing if they maybe had one. This was a while ago. And this is actually during a case that we called you on the same day about, and it was a pretty serious one. And it wasn't that far apart. I mean, the uh, compartmentalization that you have, that's what I want to talk to you about. That's something that you seem to have down pat. Yeah, well, it's it's tough at times. I mean, at times, you know, your stress level goes up because there's those, you know, we're not a big agency, so I don't have people that are assigned to logistics. And uh, uh, and I think at times that helps me. Um, you know, one of the things I think that happens with big agencies, for example, that they have these units. They have specially trained units that go out to interact with the public and to maybe address concerns. So like, if, like with this protest, if there was a concern with a black community, or a Hispanic community, they have a specialized unit that goes out and does that. Well, that's all fine and good, but that may not get translated all the way to the deputies that are handling the calls. I mean, it may go well when the unit's there, but it may not go as well when the regular patrol guys or detectives are handling an investigation. So uh, when you're small, you are that unit, you know, and you're yeah. also the unit that <laughs> calls and borrows a printer and uh, <laughs> all those things, and you're just forced to, to get through. I mean, I'm very lucky here because... People would be very proud if they knew how all of us work together. Now, I'm not saying they would agree with our decisions, but when, you know, when there's, we're really up against a tough time, I can send a text to, you know, the commissioners, and uh, they are the, my funding source. They are the way I get my funding, but they're also friends who I believe truly love Tuscross County and who will do everything that they think is right and that they can. I can do the same thing with the health commissioner. I can do the same thing with the prosecutor. And um, we all really enjoy each other's company. So it makes that, you know, that those meetings and those problems seem like they're much more workable. How, how long have you been doing this? So I started um, with the sheriff's office full-time in January of 94, the very beginning, like the fourth or something like that. 
Um, so I just uh, finished up my 26th full-time year. I, I got into reserves the end of, uh, the end of 93. Um, and then, like I said, I was a juvenile probation officer a little over three years before that. So this is my 30th year with the county this month in mm-hmm. June. Um, but I'm, uh, I guess, 27 as a deputy. Having that full round of experience, I mean, being in the correction side of things, and then you're on the road, that seems to, from me, I mean, the same thing's happening to me over the radio station. I've been in a few different departments. It seems to benefit. I mean, you know how each side works. Well, it does, but I never was in the correction side. I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. I misunderstood. No. Yeah, I was. Um, I started in juvenile probation for three years, um, and that was really an eye-opening experience. I had... You know, I remember when I was in elementary school, people coming saying when we went to middle school that, um, you know, we would might be offered drugs in the bathroom and, you know, how to say no. I never saw that. I never saw any drugs my entire life until I became a juvenile probation officer. Those were my first dealings. So then I went from there straight onto the road. Um, And then I was on the road for a few years before I went into the detective bureau. My entire career then from all my promotions and things like that that I got were all in plain clothes up until the moment I was elected. Mm -hmm. So that's my, my real background. I did wear uniform and patrol for a few years and I really liked that. And you say plain clothes, what do you mean? I mean, I was a detective. I mean, wearing, uh, you know, uh, shirts and ties or polo shirts to work in. My job was primarily the investigation of cases. Now the last couple of years under Sheriff Wilson, I was the chief deputy, so I had a lot more supervision, but I still held on to my cases. I was still the guy out investigating the murder. I just did some of the other stuff too. And I think you're absolutely right. Even though I didn't work the correction side, just having all of that, like when we started on the road, um, you did have to dispatch some. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, when you learn, you know, how somebody is frustrated in a dispatch center, it does make you respond differently as a road unit. Because you think about when you were sitting in there and you were frustrated about what the road was doing and how they were making your job harder and, <laughs> and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely, I think, a good thing when you come up through the ranks knowing, um, you know, how how everybody feels coming through. Now, I, I do understand some agencies like to hire from outside. Um, and I think sometimes that's important, especially if you have a culture problem, you know, to bring somebody in that maybe isn't necessarily – um, part of that culture problem to give it a fresh perspective and, and fresh ideals and expectations. But for me, I'm pretty proud that I kind of grew up here. I, um, when I went to the police academy, uh, it wasn't nearly as expensive as it is now, but you, it was self-pay. And uh, back then, the commissioners had voted to pay for my academy. And I think it was $1,200 versus probably about $6,500 dollars now and that was a lot of money for me because we didn't have any money and um you know even when I went to the FBI academy things other job opportunities to come up I never considered leaving for a second because I felt like they invested in me then and I was 100% confident I would retire here so do you go into this whole process ready to try and be sheriff no no in fact it's I think you hear this from most um early on you would have I'm certain I would have said no way. I would have felt like, ah, you know, that guy, he's not doing any good. Um, I'm out here actually solving cases. Mm-hmm. That's what matters to crime victims. And and that's all true except for um, then you get to the top and you realize, like, uh, you have a lot to do. Instead of you could be, and I'm not saying I was in particular, but you could have the greatest law enforcement officer in the world working for an agency. 
But if you have a chief that makes them all better, having a whole fleet of good guys are going to do more good work than even the best one guy in the world. Yeah. And that's what you strive for. I mean, um, we have disappointments at our office, just like every law enforcement agency, things that we screw up and things we should have done better. But it's a constant progression, and that's been my goal, and it's been exciting to be a part of is try to bring people further along. And, and you know, uh, we had that, you know, an incident there Sunday where we had a protest, and seeing guys – make positive comments about our deputies is so rewarding now. It's almost like looking at your children and going, oh, I'm so proud of you because <laughs> of how they handled themselves. So it's definitely been a good thing. Uh, but early on, most certainly what I have not been looking to do this. Yeah, let's talk about that protest. It keeps coming up, and obviously that's what's on people's minds right now. I mean, you show up with – I mean, there's there's cops there, there, there's police, there's city patrol, and then there's your deputies. Mm-hmm. And then you're walking with them. And it's a, it's a strange, I kind of, I think, look, because in Tuscarawas County, we haven't really had that outrage personally. We haven't had that experience, and yet you're dealing with this anger, and it feels like it's directed towards you because you're there, and you are part of what they're essentially condemning. I mean, how do you go about this? How do you go into this? Well, um, again, I think a lot of that comes with just being a little older and mature and understanding that, you know, my, you know, my daughter was there. Uh, my daughter, who's a professional educator here in the county, um, you look at that Minnesota video, and there's no way around it. If it didn't outrage you and you're in law enforcement, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some law enforcement officers will degree differ on degree of what should happen to them, but I've spoke out numerous times that I feel like it was uh, it was reprehensible and criminal. You know, I, I believe it was so bad that it's just no defense for it. Uh, so... First and foremost, and this always sounds like a, uh, the tagline on the side of the car, but I wanted to make sure everybody stayed safe. So I learned about this protest Saturday morning and the young man's name that was putting it on, and I reached out to him, and he immediately called me. He was participating in the protests in Cleveland, um, but he was very polite to me over the phone, and I, we talked several times about you know suggestions we had for each other on keeping this thing Um at a good level. And I, I felt like he wanted to do that. Um, I think he and I both agreed that that wasn't fully under his control because when you start making invitations on social meeting, it's shared and shared and shared and shared again, you can't control who comes. Um, I spoke to that young man's father who was also concerned that he had maybe gotten himself in over his head, but Hey, the ball was rolling. It was going to take place now. So um, we switched gears and we just went into preparation. So I spent um, pretty much all of Sunday, um, you know, uh, alone at the county office building, kind of reflecting on how I wanted to handle that. And, and uh, I think about uh, something we, you and I talked about very briefly right before we, we started recording was, you know, when you have an encounter with someone, it's that first impression that really matters. Um, none of our guys were in any tactical gear. That was intentional. That was well thought out. And that wasn't something to play on them or something to convince them or something to... It was just if you and I know that we're coming together in a room and there's some potential problem, when you greet somebody with a smile versus if you're standing on guard with, uh, you know, with your fist clenched, you know, that, that can start the meeting off the wrong way. I didn't yeah. want to do that. So the young man had organized it. We met um, uh, a couple hours before the rally. Um, we sat. We, we had a, a bottle of water together, and he ate his, uh, his Chinese food with me, and we talked quite a bit, and we hit it off. Yeah. Um, so that was the first thing that I thought was good. Um, and I thought that, 
all right, at least he's willing to listen. And then, of course, some of the signs, I honestly didn't know what some of the signs meant. And a few of the young people protesting didn't either because I asked them, I said, hey, what do these initials mean? And a couple of them didn't know. I think that they were keeping it very simple in their mind. They saw something on television they didn't agree with and they wanted to be part of it. Sure. I couldn't disagree with that. So I think that was part of it. I wasn't offended by what they were doing. Now, on social media, there's a lot of comments about this big banner that said F the police. Yeah. Um, and it would be very easy to get standoffish and argumentative and posture for a fight. But I'll be honest with you, long before this, we hear that. <laughs> and in law enforcement, you you just you need to develop some, some thicker skin. And, and it, it kind of hurts, but yet you can't take it personally and you can't react to it. So it was motivation, I guess, is the best way to describe it for me. And I spoke to the young man that made that sign numerous times. And uh, even though he made it, I wanted him to see uh, the real side of me. And, and while I don't think I've persuaded him in one protest, I think that if we saw each other 20 times over, someday he may decide that his banner, that his new banner he wants to make, may just say, I can't breathe instead of F the police. I mean, yeah. you want to try to give them a, a positive uh, memory of you. Um, you know, when we had this protest, we told them we weren't going to overlook any laws. For example, if I saw a young man throw his lunch on the courthouse, I was going to tell him to pick it up. If he didn't, he'd probably get summons for littering. Mm -hmm. um, we agreed that they could chant whatever they wanted to chant as long as it wasn't trying to incite a riot. They could have signs that said whatever they wanted to say, but none of the other laws were going away. We weren't going to let them tear anything up. We weren't going to let them litter. We weren't going to let them throw things at people. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I decided was important. And then after that, um, you know, uh, I got some criticism online about not wearing my mask um, up there. And that's, that's legitimate criticism right now. But again, I was, I needed them to see me smile at them. I needed them to see that every conversation I engaged in was, I was attempting to make it friendly and to make a connection. And it's hard behind a mask. Mm -hmm. So I put what's what I call the greater good behind the mask. I put it away for the day and and uh, I didn't use it because I wanted to make sure there were no misunderstandings. And I think the best way you can do that is with body language and facial expressions. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a play, though. I mean, we, we have people saying that these police in larger cities are, are kneeling as a play and then mm -hmm. pulling out batons an hour later. Mm -hmm. But to me, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I was videoing there on Facebook Live, it looked like you led them onto the street. Right, yeah, and I actually even uh, suggested to them that they put their banner up front. Now, I, it's uh, funny because I suggested to them that their banner go up front, not necessarily because of what it said, but because I knew it would help keep them together as a group, and I wanted to keep control of the group. Um, I had mounted deputies up there. Everybody loves horses. Even the <laughs> protesters love horses. And again, that's an interesting way to show people what our office has to offer, and we wanted to escort them. We told them they had received some threats of people that would come by and maybe shoot at them with paint guns. And if that would have happened, we had cars paralleling the parade from a block away that could, if we gave them a car description, we could swoop in and we were going to, we were going to make arrests on that. We were not waiving any laws. We we're not going to let anybody attack anybody. But the truth is, is that, uh, you know, uh, America is a complex place. And uh, when Americans see what they perceive as injustice, they protest. And yep. I said it the other day, it started with the, uh, the, you know, the Tea Party in Boston. You know, when we felt like we were be being handled unjustly, uh, we rose up and protested. And that's still taking place today. And you can't be proud of it in your heritage and not proud of it now. I think what you do is you just have to think things over. I hear, you know, I hear somebody say black lives matter and then somebody else almost in an argumentative tone 
has to say all lives matter. Well, of course all lives matter. Yeah. But why am I offended just because he's saying black lives matter? And, um, you know, that's how they're, that's what they perceive is going on. So why does that offend me? I mean, why won't I just listen and see if we can't improve it? Uh, somebody used the analogy that if six people sit around like this beautiful table we're sitting at now, six people sit around for dinner and five of them are given food. And uh, the guy who's not given food says, hey, guys, my food matters. And they say, well, of course, all food matters. Yeah. Well, yeah, all food matters, but I'm the only one that didn't get any. So my food matters most right now. And I think that's what Black Lives Matter is trying to argue. I mean, I, I, I always say all lives matter, but I don't say it in a way. I don't have to say it to rebut what they're saying because it, 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 it's almost in an argumentative tone to say, no, I don't agree with you. My way is right. Yeah. I don't feel a need to correct them. I feel they're passionate about their cause and I want to be part of the solution. So whenever this heats up like this, I mean, is there a conversation that you have with your deputies or is that already an expectation? Should they already be in the know of this conversation? It's both. Um, it's uh, a standing joke um, that uh, they know I'm going to be that way. I'm at the, I'm that way at the fair. Um, and I know that some people because I am an elected official, some people are always going to accuse me of just being a politician. You can't get away from that. I don't think I can worry about that. What I, what I try to think about is, and this is where people may or may not believe it, but I really love people. Yeah. I even love the difficult ones. I mean, sometimes you, you're trying to help someone and they're fighting you and you're resisting you and you're just trying to help them and it, you're frustrated. And then at the end of the day, I lie, I laugh about it and go, you know, I spent four hours trying to help this person. <laughs> and if they would have just gone along with it in the first 15 minutes, like they did in the last 15 minutes today would have been so much easier, but Hey, yeah. that's people. They have their own uh, biases and mistrust because of what's happened to them in life. But when I say I love people, it's not just some of the people. Um, you know, I had a young man who came up to me and interviewed me at the protest who told me he was from Detroit and was formerly a drug dealer here in the area and, uh, wanted to talk to me. And, uh, you know, most law enforcement officers would be very apprehensive about that. Am I going to be baited? Um, and I just figured that I should be able to stand and answer questions and, um, and I should be able to give my own honest opinion. And, uh, you know, he asked me questions about, Minneapolis, which I was happy to answer. And he also asked me questions about a recent incident in New Philadelphia, which I was happy to answer. Yeah. And I was able to give my honest opinion to both. And I didn't feel like I had to sell my soul out. Um, I've also seen that law enforcement nationwide, some of those agencies, um, you know, cause I knelt with them at prayer at the park and some of those agencies, uh, nobody's commented directly to me about that, but there's a lot of, of internet chat right now that law enforcement should not be kneeling and they're saying that in a black and white, like law enforcement should not be kneeling. And I think that that's a ridiculous thing to say. I think that it's up to law enforcement to be genuine. Mm -hmm. And when I knelt at the park, it was very simple. They opened with a prayer from two people whom I happen to know who are very well respected, who wanted to say a prayer for peace and to bring God into this protest and, and, and then somebody said, let's all take a knee. So I took a knee because I agree with that. And if I would have been up watching the Quaker football team and uh, right before the game, if they would have let me hang out in a huddle in there and someone says, okay, guys, uh, let's, let's get our prayer, take a knee out of taking a knee with them. I'm not going to not take a knee with one group just because of what they're doing. Because in, in the end we were, we were just praying for peace. So, 
This um, it seems too good to be true to talk to you. I mean, for the people that are on this uh, Black Lives Matter movement, which should be everybody, I mean, you are saying, and I've seen you live the things, but you're saying the things that people want our police to say. That's it's what makes me love this county so much, is that you are the head of our, our county police department, our, yeah. our county's sheriff's office. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, it's. I'm sure I've done things along my career that's disappointed others, and I'm also sure that there's been force used by people that other people may not understand. You know, I'll, I will tell you this. Um, uh, the officer in Minnesota, you know, they refer to him as being a racist, and he may be the biggest racist that has ever walked the face of the earth. I can't tell by watching that video. Okay. He may treat every individual like that. He may be a total bully and a jerk and a thug who just misabuses people all day long. That video didn't show me he was a racist. I mean, if he would have been arresting someone for possession of methamphetamine and happened to be a white male and Asian male, he may have treated them the same way, inhuman. But I'm not at all saying he's not a racist. And uh, that's what I've become comfortable with in my skin is I've become comfortable if I really believe it and just politely disagreeing. I think that Sunday, what the organizer and a lot of the other people that I talked to at the beginning, before it really got up and going, I think we were able to focus on what, our, what we agreed on. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even try to pry for what we might disagree on. Because the truth is, when you get to know somebody, it's a lot harder to hate them. You know, I worked a lot of murder cases for this county. Dozens. Uh, dozens mm-hmm. of people went to murder. And when you're a young investigator, you, you're tracking down someone who did something horrific, and you always want to picture them as a monster. Mm-hmm. I guess it makes it easier to do your job. And what they did was horrific and monstrous, but when you meet them at the end, you know, sometimes you're like, man, they threw away their whole life, and they didn't seem like that bad of a guy. Yeah. Now, I still agree with them going to prison for life without parole. All of that, I believe in accountability, but... It's really easy to villainize somebody when you don't sit face to face. But when you sit down and you talk to them and you, you try to come with, up with goals, I often say, and a lot of people say, that's our problem with Congress anymore. Congress is spread out across the country. They fly back to vote. They fly back for sessions where they used to live there and our kids used to go to school there. And you had Democrats and Republicans who were attending the same Little League baseball game because their kids went. I, you know, I'm told by people who I know uh, are involved with Congress that that doesn't take place anymore, that it's so segregated. And therefore, I think it's even affected how uh, Congress works together. So sure. I think it works the same in the community. And you seem to really trust the process. You seem to trust what you know and what you're able to conduct out of the sheriff's office. I mean, we're looking at the new uh, uh, crime scene van. And we're lo- mm-hmm. you are on a mission, it seems, to keep everything in-house. Because you trust your guys. Right. Well, and the other thing is, is that um, there's, you know, we're not big enough. Our budget's not big enough to have everything in-house. But listen, you know, that crime scene van, the crime scene program in my detective bureau, when the big crimes happen, um, the community wants them solved. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with using a crime scene agent from somewhere else except for, you know, the next day they're getting called to go somewhere else. They don't live here. I remember, um, you know, when a very horrific murder once that, um, you know, two young girls were abducted. And, and I remember everywhere I went that day, everybody was looking at me because they knew I was the investigator on it. And I felt the heat of people expecting an answer. Mm-hmm. And bringing somebody in from outside, they don't have that. You know, if I bring in a crime scene agent from 
you know, uh, Akron or Cincinnati or Cleveland, and if that's where they happen to live, well, they're going to go back there. Where as long as it's unsolved, I got to look at you in the grocery store. And Ryan, you know that that case is still unsolved, and you're probably wondering when I'm going to solve it. And I think a little bit of pressure is good that way. Yeah. So it isn't so much that we think we're better. It's that uh, I believe in home rule. I believe in that local control. And now if I have a murder and my crime scene agent needs to stay there for three weeks, um, and you know, I'll give you, I could give an example without mentioning cases. Um, you know, there was one with another agency that called crime scene units in from the state. Um, it was a horrific double murder and the crime scene agents worked at house for three hours. Um, like two or three, three crime scene agents. Is that long? Is that short? That's so short. <laughs> so, you know, you take the very next murder and my guys worked a mobile home for a week and we knew what we're doing. Yeah. We're taking every trap apart, you know, looking for evidence in the trap that was washed down a drain. We're doing things at a much deeper level. And um, that's what we could control. It's not that the state guys don't know how to do it. It's that um, it's not their community um, for the most part. Some of them do live here locally or we have one that lives here locally and he loves his community as well. But I can't control who I get. Yeah. So uh, that's a big thing for me is having people look in the eye. I mean, I know my guys when they they see people in the grocery store when there's an unsolved case, it's, it's hurtful. You know, when I've had uh, murder victims, I mean, you're really affected by it. I've never had anybody treat me badly from a murder case, but every time I run into the family of somebody from a murder, uh, at the grocery store, um, I try to duck them. Um, there's never been any bad blood. The problem is, is that I feel like as soon as they see me, I'm the automatic reminder of the worst moment of their life. Yep. So, you know, if you something ha horrific happened in your family and I saw you before you saw me, I'm going to duck an aisle. Yeah. And uh, I've had a family who, uh, I've had one family that will not let that happen. They have forced themselves into my life because, uh, you know, they, you know, they said they didn't view it that way. And I realized that families probably are thinking about that murdered family member all the time without seeing me. But I'm just telling you internally, mm -hmm. that's how it feels. It feels like I'm the, uh, an immediate reminder to the worst moment of the life. I always get excited when I talk to you because you have this real, uh, I think, philosophy on transparency, which is something that can be difficult with an official in your position or in, a, in any separate position. And that, that includes, I, I, I think you brought it up to me that you wanted me to do a ride along and I took your good graces and I had you let me do two of those. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was just, it was such a good experience. And that comes with, you are willing to let me a reporter, which isn't exactly loved in your profession, just in general, a reporter go with two different uh, di patrol deputies that you don't have control of what happens. You don't have control of what situation they're going to come into and how they're going to react. That's got to have a lot of trust in who's working with you and for you. Well, absolutely. I mean, most of our guys really are good guys, but secondly, um, you know, if you want to, if you want to believe that you're making a difference, I mean, we're nowhere close to where I want to be. I mean, you know, the sheriffs I work for were far more experienced as sheriffs. They were in a lot longer. This is my first term. I'm, we're in the last year of my first term. I'm on the ballot again this year. I'm unopposed so far. But I can honestly tell you that if I were to work my second term, just like I did my first term, I'll be very disappointed. I'm I was a very comfortable investigator, but then it was like learning a whole new job. And I'm not as effective as how I saw Harold McKimmy when I was, you know, in, in, you know, and he was a sheriff for a long time. And then Walt Wilson was a sheriff for a long time and we're all different, but they, they did do things, uh, in some ways 
uh, better and easier than I am that I've probably struggled with. So I guess one of the things that I feel comfortable in is when you ride that there could be a bad experience, but if I really want to know how my office is going, I got to let that happen. And then I got to address it. I can't, I can't prep you and just put you with that special unit that we talked about earlier. I could, I could handpick a deputy and say, you only go with this guy and I yeah. could prep that guy all day long, but all that's fake. Yeah. I mean, all that's fake. So, um, you know, I do have guys that I know every single time they're going to go out and do a good job. Um, you know, they may not solve a case or something, but they're going to treat people well. And then I've got other guys that you have counseling sessions, just like Sheriff McKimmy had with me. So. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're doing the, the bringing up as well. It sounds like. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm trying. I guess that's the role that I'm, I feel like, uh, I need to get better at because, um, I'm 48 now, but I still feel like young. I mean, I remember when I was the very youngest and I was definitely the youngest detective and uh, I was the youngest juvenile probation officer. They hired me two weeks out of high school. I was always the youngest guy. And now I'm an old guy that's been with the County 30 years. And I think it's important for me to, uh, you know, to try to make them understand the view and they're going to struggle to understand some of the things that I believe because I would have struggled it at that age too. But I've got young guys too, that are incredible. I mean, people knock this millennial generation, this, you know, uh, and I tell you what, I hire an awful lot of young people, and the good ones are really great. I have no problem with this generation. I think, um, I think first of all, when you knock a young generation, you have to question who their parents were, which is my generation. So yeah. if this is the worst generation that's ever come about, then we're probably the worst generation of parents that's ever come about. And that's, it's hard to escape that fact. But secondly, I mean, with the right leadership, I see these young people do incredible things, and they do want to change the world. Like a young girl interviewed me the other day and she looked like she was 14 and that's no exaggeration. And she was 21 <laughs> and she was from the County and she felt moved to protest. I really believed with 100% of her heart that she wanted to change the world and make it a better place. And if you start with that, it's probably going to work out. You seem like a guy that never lost the love for the work outside of being outside of the sheriff's work. Are you still, I mean, I saw a video of you that you showed me cause you thought it was pretty cool to show knocking down a door that needed knocked down. Are you still doing that? Yeah. When you have the chance. Yeah. Actually, um, uh, we try not to talk about our tactics too much because it educates those who might want to resist them. But sure. a couple of weeks ago, we, um, you know, we arrested a guy who was wanted for a cold case murder, um, in another county, uh, uh, the other county had done all the work on that. They've been working on 14 years, but it was an individual that was reported to us very violent. He had tried to, uh, disarm a law enforcement officer by taking his gun from him. He's been, um, in, to prison for other very violent offenses. And he was hiding in our County in Newcomerstown. And, you know, you have to check your ego a little bit because, um, you know, we did have the SWAT team involved in that, but the way we got him was by a ruse. Um, and I don't like to discuss the ruses, but I mean, they could be as simple as delivering a pizza or, or, uh, that's not the one we used here. <laughs> Wait, seriously? Absolutely. Yeah. I can't tell you how many search yeah. warrants we executed by showing up at the door with a, you know, with a pizza back in the day. We haven't done that in a while, but, um, you know, even if you didn't order a pizza, you're probably going to open the door to tell me you didn't order a pizza and then it's too late. Yeah. And I can keep you from hurting me and I can keep you from getting hurt if it's all over before you know what took place. So this individual in Newcomerstown, um, we did some, we did some surveillance, we did some things, but he was in cuffs and had no idea any of us were law enforcement. Are you um, kidding me? Uh, and that I think has a lot to do with ego and that you don't need to bring out the toys just because you've bought them in your budget. 
if if you know the safest thing is the having the element of surprise, then having a guy. I mean, it was kind of a funny situation. Um, uh, we grabbed his arms. He didn't resist because he didn't realize what was going on. We put uh, cuffs on him, and then that first cuff when it hit him was when he first realized it was law enforcement, and then his dog peed on my foot. <laughs> and that was how the day went. But that's as dangerous as it got. And the SWAT team then, ironically, as we put the cuff on it, quietly opened his back door, which he was unlocked, and they were standing there waiting. Had it gone haywire with us, yeah. the other tactics were ready. But even using the ruse, it allowed the SWAT team to get to the house without him ever knowing it. Yeah, I always question you know, the tactics that were used in Waco, and I, I really don't have the... I really shouldn't do that, but um, sometimes, you know, when you know there's somebody looking for a fight, it's better off to, to, to end it before it begins, and and you have to be willing to put the rifles away sometimes, and, some, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've posed as something that I'm not to just, it isn't a trick, it isn't to try to deceive someone, it's really to try to keep them, you know, when people get arrested, sometimes they flee because they're in fear or they make a bad judgment, or their heart races. You can take all of that away sometimes by ending it before they even know what's going on. Yeah, that's the interesting part is it's all about safety. It's all about how you can keep not only the public, but the person that you are arresting safe because it seems like you know that you're not the judge in this case. You are the one that's bringing them to the judge to be judged. Well, absolutely. And there's no doubt that force in my job is, uh, is going to be necessary. And I think that if... Um, I think you have to build a track record. So, for example, you know, in any relationship that you have in life, take out law enforcement and citizen, but any relationship you have in life, trust is built over time. So, you know, I want the community to keep seeing news pieces like you may have seen that I did release that we used a ruse. I did release that the individual was arrested before he even knew it was taking place. And those kind of things happen a lot. And I want people to know that if it ever really goes wrong and we have to use force or God forbid deadly force, I want the community to at least have the confidence that they might want to give us a benefit of the doubt that it was unavoidable, that we weren't the type of agency that was looking for a fight. You know, that um, if I'm greeting people with a smile and it really goes wrong, if that protest, Hey, listen, there's no doubt about it. They were, those protesters were equally to get uh, uh, equally responsible for the peace there. Because if one of them would have picked up a brick, thrown it through a courthouse window, I'm going to act. I mean, that's uh, there's no doubt about it that I would have moved in for an arrest. And that moving in for an arrest could have then moved into a shoving match, could then moved into a full-out um, um, riot. So they're equally uh, responsible for the peace that we had. But I think that I, I was willing to come to the table with the smiles and with the, the attitude that give them the benefit of the doubt from the beginning that they just wanted to be heard. And you're walking down the street in this situation and didn't, didn't appear. Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. I, I couldn't tell. You didn't look like you had a bulletproof vest on, which means it goes in your best interest to keep things peaceful just like it goes in everybody else's. Right. Yeah. No, I wasn't, I wasn't wearing one that day, uh, which is – bad practice for law enforcement. I wouldn't let my guys do that, but it, it's just, um, I spend most of my time, you know, in office settings and, uh, uh, so I don't wear it as much as I, I should. But, um, the truth is that, you know, when you look at the great people over the country, um, that have been killed, if someone's willing to give their life to take yours, they're probably going to be able to do it. Um, you know, I mean, I could wear that vest, but if somebody really wanted to hide out from a distance down the street with a rifle in the back of their car and shoot me in the head, it could happen. So you have to you have to uh, praise a man above a little bit and just uh, put your faith in that it's going to be okay. And you also have to believe that you're going to make it better 
just by being somebody that they want to help take care of. I, I honestly believe that because of the relationship I made with some of those protesters, had there been one serious instigator that came up against me, and this did not happen, but I venture to say I'll bet you some of those protesters would have come to my defense. Um, they would have stood with me to back down an instigator. So I think that's the best way is even if we would have had to have a situation, to, it would have been to work together. So it was – but I, I wasn't always this calm and confident. I mean, it's something that comes with experience, that's for sure. You seem like a man of philosophy. Is that something you think about <laughs> often or are you just who you are? No, I mean, I think being a parent is makes you more of a person of philosophy because uh, there's no – you know, my job as sheriff obviously is important, but it's n nowhere close as important as just being a parent or a mentor to somebody else. Um, you know, that's going to be ultimately what I'm judged by is uh, the, the, the people I've mentored or, you know, it, the real only way you can be judged as a leader is uh, the leaders that you that you bring up behind you. I mean, if I if I can leave by behind some leaders um, at the sheriff's office that do a great job. And if I had some influence on them, that'll be the, the best way. But like I say, when you're young, I mean, it was all about wanting to solve the case for me back then. It was just the case. It was all about the case. Um, I, it, it didn't want anything bad for people or anything like that, but I mean, it was the focus on the case board now at 48 with 30 years with the County. It's about the people. It's, it's about the people I serve. It's about the people that I work with and trying to lead them. And it's, you know, it's really about the people. That's what it's come down to. So well, let's finish on this because I know that at any minute you could probably just have to run out of here. So I think it's best to finish on a, on a nice letdown. And I think for a man that sees literally the worst things that this County has to offer as every County does, mm -hmm. you exude a love for Tess Cross County. And I just, I, I, I want to know why, because I've always <laughs> felt like this place is special, but I'm only 25 years old and yeah. I haven't really been out that much. And I don't think I have a ground to stand on to say that this place is special compared to another, but you seem to know that. And I want to know why it it's simple. It's what I've already said. It is nothing to do with the land or the fields. I mean, I live in town and then, you know, in a, in a, in a housing allotment with houses next to me. It's nothing like that. Even though I think Tuscross County is beautiful. Yeah. This County took a kid that, you know, come from not very much, they invested their tax dollars in my original police academy, which was huge. Like say, that was like giving me a grant of $20,000 back then when I was that age. Um, you know, they sent me to the FBI academy. I had mentors who literally laid everything down to put me ahead. How could you not love it here when you, you do that way? I mean, when you look at your home and why, when you go home to your mom's house and it just feels like home, at Thanksgiving or at Christmas, it's not because of the house. It's because of every experience you had in the house. Every time that your mom was there for every bad moment of your life or every moment you needed guidance or your dad or whoever was there, that's what makes the house special. Well, that's what makes the county special. There were so many people that did not let me fail. Or if they let me fail, they made sure I got right back up. And I think that's what makes uh, Tuscar's County your home. You know, it, it drives my uh, my wife crazy, even though she agrees with me. Um, it is not a joke. It's kind of a joke now, but we would leave the county, and I always took this deep breath when we got back into the county. And now we've got, you know, our seven-year-old son doing it too. When we cross the county line, we always go, ah, the, you know, the air is just better here. But it really is just that feeling of home because the people here have taken care of me every bit as much as I've taken care of them.
Sheriff, I appreciate you taking time. I know that you're busier than probably anybody, anybody else that I know. And this has been eye-opening, even though every time I talk to you, this is eye-opening. I appreciate it. I appreciate talking to you, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you.